come before you today ready to confess a dangerous thing. I think this will be a short sermon. <laughs> the last time I said that, the last time I said that was at our outdoor service and the sermon was 40 minutes, which is normal. But this time I actually do mean it um, for what that's worth. The reason is, you can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 35. We're going to be talking about the parable of the two debtors. And I think the parable sermons are going to be shorter than the Acts sermons, just because they interpret themselves uh, so well. And Jesus himself delivers the so what. So there's, there's less work that's called for on my part, so to speak. So this parable, very simple parable, the parable itself is in Luke chapter 7, verses 41 to 47. But every parable is given for a reason. So we're going to back up and do Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, to see what brought about this parable. What's it mean? Why should we care? This is how I want to introduce it. Uh, too much of a good thing, a prudent thing, can be a really bad thing. You can end up turning a good thing into something bad. You can end up ruining it. Salt sometimes is good in your food, but if you add too much salt, then everything's ruined. I love Buffalo Wild Wings. I love that place. I have no idea. There's nothing special about it. It's just, it's just, a, just a, a chain of fast, casual restaurants, but I love Buffalo Wild Wings. I get boneless, 10, 10 boneless wings with Asian zing sauce and fries with blue cheese. I don't know why, but I really just love <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings. But if I have too much of it, then I feel disgusting for the rest of the day. Too much of a heavenly thing can turn into something quite bad. Too, when you make your relationship sort of pivot to real things now, to make, if you make your relationship with God too much about knowledge, about head knowledge, about cerebral things, your vision of God can become skewed and messed up. If you make your relationship with God more about performance, more about external actions, more about rules you follow than about other things, your vision of God, your version of God whom you worship, can become skewed and ruined. Today, Jesus is going to talk about this very issue. We're going to have two people who we're going to speak to. We're going to have a Pharisee, and we're going to have a woman who is a great sinner who's been forgiven. We're going to see two totally different reactions to Jesus, and that is what prompts the parable. The parable is basically asking this question. Uh, what is your, if you claim to be a Christian, what is your relationship with God actually about? Like, what's the, what's the foundation of your relationship with God? What's it about? That is what our parable is. So we're going to go through the sermon in two steps. Step one is we'll just go through the parable and see what it says. And step two, I'll explain the, the, the implications of what Jesus says to get us to think about this and think about its relationship to our lives. So let's pray and we'll dive into this parable. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Please open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds. Help us to brush aside any tendency we have to think the parable applies to the other guy. And through your spirit, apply the parable to ourselves, to our own life, 
Help us to think whether which one of the people in this parable we are. Are we the Pharisee or are we the woman who has been forgiven of many sins? Help us be honest with ourselves and work on our hearts as your spirit sees fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here we go. And there is no PowerPoint today. So really, we're breaking new ground here. No PowerPoints. You have to stare at me, which is awful. But Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now we're going to meet this woman. Uh, this is not Mary Magdalene. In, Mar in Mark, in Matthew, and in John, there is a story of a woman right before the, the Last Supper who comes and anoints Jesus' feet. Uh, that takes place way at the end of his ministry. Luke chapter 7 is not the end of his ministry. So this is a different woman than that lady from John chapter 12, from Matthew 26, or from Mark 14. This is a different woman altogether. So Jesus is preaching, and a Pharisee invites Jesus to have dinner with him. And he goes. Why not? Goes to the Pharisee's house and reclines at table. Uh, the way they ate then is if you look at one of these round tables, but pretend it was sitting on the ground. Everyone, like, laid on their side or on their stomach with their head toward the front of the table. And so the, ex the, the perimeter was just a bunch of feet going around a table. Everyone's like zooming in on the table um, so they can reach for the food and everything, laying down on the ground. They have the, the table or whatever you want to call it is on the ground. So there's no chairs. So they're all laying down facing the table or the, the mat or the rug or whatever, and their feet are all behind them in a circle. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So this is not Mary Magdalene. No one knows what this woman's issue was. Many people like to assume she must have been a woman of the night, a, a prostitute. Uh, I think that's projecting a lot. It just says she lived a sinful life. Women can commit other sins than being prostitutes. I don't know what the obsession is with trying to pinpoint her sin. She lived a sinful life. That's all it says. No idea what it is. Who knows? It doesn't matter. She lived a sinful life. And this is not like our houses today where it's all buttoned up, the garage doors closed, the windows are closed, the door is locked. These are houses that are built in more of an open plan so you can see inside and go inside. And it's, it's not... It's not like our house is now. So she learns that Jesus is there, and she feels so compelled to go visit him that she, probably because she heard him preaching in his public ministry, she goes into the house anyway with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she did not crawl under the table to find his feet. You know, they're reclining facing the table and their feet are all behind them that's that's the only that's why it's it's written this way she she's approaching him from behind from the doorway and she's kneeling down at his feet which is stretched which are stretched out behind him so she's crying so much that tears are dropping all over jesus's feet then she wiped them with her hair kissed them and poured perfume on them when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, so this is important. Think, uh, read the reaction that this guy has. He never says it out loud, 
There's a lot of things we think that we never say out loud, but he thinks it inside. When the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. That's the attitude the Pharisee has. The Pharisee doesn't believe in Jesus, but he's curious enough and good for him, he invites Jesus to dinner. He wants to talk with him to hear more about this message in a, in a private setting. But the Pharisee's problem is that he's, he's a legalist. And so he doesn't care about what she believes about anything. All he cares about is she is a bad person. And if Jesus really were a prophet, he'd never let her near him. What kind of people does God accept in the Pharisee's world? In the Pharisee's world, the only people who can come to God are the people who are cleaned up on the outside. That's what the Pharisee's thinking. That's like his default filter. And so to him, he's dismissing Jesus in his mind. I, I invited this guy over for dinner, but... I don't know what he is, but he can't really be the prophet that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy 18. Look, he, he'd know this is not a good person. This woman's a, a sinner. She's useless. She's, she's infamous. He'd never let her touch him. So to him, relationship with God is about being cleaned up on the outside. That's like a primary importance. You must be put together. That must happen. And if it doesn't happen, there's probably nothing there. God probably won't accept you. Remember the passage I read at the beginning of the service. So Jesus sees this opening. He didn't say it out loud, but Jesus knows what he thinks. So Jesus immediately launches a probing um, rejoinder to that. Verse 40, Jesus asked him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. Here's our parable. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And a denarii is like a day's wage. So think of it as one guy owed enough money, like a month and a half of salary. The other guy owed like 16 months of salary. So they both owe a lot of money. I don't know if any of you happen to have a month and a half of extra salary laying around in your savings account, or 16 months. But two people owed a guy a lot of money. Verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? It's an easy question. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, like a handshake or greeting, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. 
Therefore, I tell you, so here it is, here's the point. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. What he's saying is, is that the love you'll show for God indicates how much you think God has forgiven you. The Pharisee isn't showing Jesus any love, isn't showing God any love. So what does that mean? What, what does that suggest the Pharisee thinks about how much he needs to be forgiven? Doesn't need to be forgiven that much. He doesn't say that, but it, it's right there under the surface. It's, it's just waiting for Simon to pick it up. You know, it's one of those things where it's, it's just sitting there. The implication's right there, and all Simon has to do is take it if he wants to. Or he could just get angry and push it away. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So now we take that parable and we come back to um, the question I asked you at the beginning. If you claim to be a Christian, what's your relationship with God about? Like, what's, what's the foundation of it? And I've said this before, you have three options that are floating around out there that you can, that you can choose from. And whether you realize it or not, you've probably if you're a Christian, you've probably chosen one of these three options. One is your relationship with God can be about knowing the right things, having the right answers, knowing why Jesus came, knowing that Jesus is one divine person with two natures, knowing about the Trinity, knowing that Jesus came to die for our sins, knowing that he was perfect for you in your place. All of this, like it's like taking a library and just downloading it into your mind. It's a lot of right and good stuff and your relationship with God is about knowledge. I know this. I know that. I understand this. Pondering deep things. Your relationship to God can be about knowledge. And all of these three things I'm going to mention are good things, but like the salt or buffalo wild wings, if one of them, for two of them, if you make that the main thing, the whole thing gets messed up. So option one is relationship with God is about knowing things. Option two, relationship with God is about doing the right things. Relationship with God means I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't watch this. I don't watch that. I, I, I don't watch this show. I do watch that show. I only watch stuff from Pure Flix. I never watch anything from Netflix or whatever. You know, I only dress like this. I never dress like that. I never do this, but I do do that. Your relationship is about rules. And it's good to have standards of conduct. It's not a bad thing. But if your relationship with God is all about rules, like the Pharisees, what does God look like to you? What is the version of God that you project to other people if your version of God is a God who sits there making sure that you've, you've, marked, you've gotten all the rules correct? 
That's not a very nice sort of God. It's a God who's a taskmaster. The third option is that love can be the foundation of your relationship with God. I love God because of everything he's done for me. And then that love produces, I want to know more about him. That love produces, I want to do what he says. But those two things are not the foundation. The foundation is, I love God. And because of that, the other things follow. It's the third one that should be your foundation. Love. Is that the Pharisee's foundation? The Pharisee in our parable. When he saw the woman washing Jesus' feet, what is the Pharisee's foundation? His foundation is, she, she can't be, she can't, she's not, she can't be part of the family. She hasn't cleaned herself up yet. She hasn't cleaned herself up. Only when she cleans herself up can we even discuss whether she's fit to, to be near the prophet. The Pharisees, it's about rules. People have always been tempted to ruin the simplicity of the gospel by making salvation about performance. Salvation equals performance. Paul fought against this all the time in Galatians chapter 3. You can take quotes from the Old Testament out of context and try and make it say, salvation equals do this or die. You, you can do that. You'd be ripping them out of context, though. When Paul does that all through Galatians 3, taking, using quotes the way false believers do to explain why they're so wrong. I've seen stuff like this in churches all of my life. I was in a church once where a woman went and berated someone else's children because they were wearing headphones during the church service. And she, she talked to the boy without his parents present about how it was rude and disrespectful that he was wearing headphones during the church service. I have no idea if this boy is a Christian or not because the family left the church soon afterward. Um, but what impression of God do you think that that 12-year-old boy got when this woman came and yelled at him without his parents present about wearing headphones in church. What version of God do you think he understood at that point when she's chastising him? Not the God of love. No, I don't think he should wear headphones during church, but that's his parents' deal. That's not mine. I'm not going to go yell at people to t yell at someone's kid to take headphones off. That's, that's the parent's responsibility. What version of God am I presenting if I go to a child and say, don't you dare wear headphones in this church? That's really going to make them want to accept Jesus, won't it? It's not that it's wrong. It's that if you do something like that, your version of God is more about rules than it is about. He loved me, so I love him. I've been in a church where someone criticized children and told them that if they go to the bathroom during the church service, that they're disrespecting God. What do you think that says to these children about God? Again, this is a rules-based thing that's just oozing out there. I was, I, was told, I was in a church once where I was told by a church member that I must not know what the gospel means because they didn't like the way something went during the morning service. The morning service didn't go according to the order this person was used to. So a person came and told me that they seriously believed that I didn't understand what the gospel was. 
This is a rules-based thing, and it's so easy to slip into without thinking about it. I was told by someone at a different church that because I didn't do the Lord's Supper in the precise order that he preferred it, that I was letting heresy into the church. Because I didn't, I, I, he wanted, he thought I should pray before we distributed the bread and the cup and pray again before we partake of the bread and the cup. And I'd only prayed once. It was a terrible sin, obviously, you know. And so it's like, what kind of, what is your, when you see these silly examples, what does it say about those people's relationship with God? What is it based on? Is it based on love? I, we love him because he first loved us? Or is it based on, we don't follow these rules? It's bad. Which one? It's good to have rules, but if rules are the foundation for your relationship with God, then things are going to get all messed up. Just like if you order a 20-piece boneless chicken special from Buffalo Wild Wings for lunch, you will not feel good for the rest of the day, right? We'll mess everything, a pure and delicious thing has been ruined because of overuse. I was, last example, I'm just throw this out there because it's so silly. I was told by someone else, I've been told a lot of, pastors are told a lot of things. I was told by some, we watched a movie, not in this church, in a different church, we watched a movie in December. We showed a movie at church in the nighttime. We had popcorn and invited church members to come and we had a movie night at church. We watched this movie, it's from 2006, called The Nativity. That's it, it's just called The Nativity. It's a great movie, um, great Christmas movie, really accurate depiction of um, Gabriel's announcement to Mary of how she's going to bear Jesus and her pregnancy and the birth in Beth Bethlehem. This man told me that I was allowing heresy into the church because it showed Mary screaming in pain during childbirth. And I said, well, she was in pain. He said, well, it's not in the Bible. And I said, do you think that she had no pain? Was there like an epidural slipped in, like between shots that we aren't aware of? He's like, it's not in the Bible. It's unbiblical. This is a, this is a, this is a, a weirdness that comes from having a rules-based understanding of God. So this is my point, and this is the parable's point. If love isn't the basis of your relationship with God, then you probably have no relationship with God. Your relationship with God should be based on love. We love him because he first loved us. And then we want to know him more? Yeah, know lots of things about God. And then we want to do what God wants us to do. But all of that flows from the love that we have for him, not the other way around. When God made us, Genesis says he made us in his image. What's that mean? Have you ever thought about that? What's it mean to be made in the image of God? Does that mean we physically look like him? I hope God doesn't look like me. I shaved my beard this morning, and one of my sons said, I look like the Nazi from Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> the guy who got the medallion burned in his hand, the Nazi. I was like, what is that supposed to mean? So I hope God does not look like me, right? Um, so it's not a, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical form. So there is no physical resemblance. It's not that I, God looks like me, thank goodness, or thank God, I should say. He doesn't look like me. What is, some people think the image of God is that we, 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 we rule over things like God rules. You know, we have dominion over the animals. We, we, we're in charge of things in a way that 
cats, cats like think they're in charge of things, but they're not in charge of things. That's how we're in the image of God. We have uh, the mind, we have the knowledge, we have the capacity to rule that a cat does not have, no matter how much it likes to think it does. What image of God really means is we're made for, we're made for relate, we're the only one, we're the only creatures who God made to have a relationship with him. Cats cannot have a relationship with God. Dogs, all dogs are not going to heaven and they do not have a relationship with God. They can't know God. They can't respond to God. Your hamster can't respond to God. Your pet snake cannot respond to God. Only we alone among all of God's creatures can respond to him and only we were made to have a relationship with him. And this relationship, like all relationships, is supposed to be based on love. Love. That's supposed to be what the relationship is about. But it's been ruined. Adam, our first parents ruined it. What God's story is about, from, all the way from that promise in Genesis 3.15, all the way to the end when everything's fixed in Revelation 22, is God fixing this breached relationship, restoring it through Jesus based on love. He loves us. We respond back and love him and trust in Jesus. That's the basis of what it means to be human. We're made to know God and to love him. Not to know God and follow these rules. Not to know God and be able to explain the hypostatic union really well. Know God, love him. And then explain the hypostatic union. When Jesus, when the, when the lawyer asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might. Love with everything you have. Love God and then love your neighbor as yourself because that flows from the first. If you love God, with everything you have, you'll want to do what he says. And guess what he says? We're supposed to love one another. That flows from the first. So two things to think about. If you think relationship with God is all about rules, then you don't know what the Christian life is really, really about in the end. So this is a test. So let's leave the clouds. This is a test. A simple question. How would you answer this question, like reflexively? This is the question. Do transgender people go to hell? If you say, yes, if that's your instinctive, yes, then without realizing it, you're thinking of a relationship with God as based on rules. Transgenderism is wrong, and God doesn't like it, and God wants it to not happen. But... You don't go to hell because you're confused about your gender, because you're confused about who you want to sleep with, or because you're a really rude, reckless driver. You go to hell because you reject God's offer of love and forgiveness through Jesus. If you accept Jesus, relationship is not, with God is not about right practice. It's not about being cleaned up on the outside. It's about love, which then produces a transformation from the inside out. That transformation is the fruit of the love. It's not the cause. It's not the other way around. The tree produces the apple. Love for God 
will transform your heart and your life. And so then he'll work on purging things out of your life, like transgenderism, gender confusion, sexual confusion. He'll work on you slowly, maybe along, maybe really slowly, maybe fast to change your heart and mind so you'll change your behavior to match who he's made you from the inside out. But if your immediate reaction is, do transgender people go to hell? And you say, yes, you're thinking like the Pharisee. As long as you're straight, you're going to heaven? No, it has nothing to do with that. It's about Jesus. Love for God then produces right actions and right belief. So when we see this parable, you have two different faiths. The Pharisee, Luke 7, 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw the woman at his feet, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. That's faith number one. God will accept you if you just clean yourself up. That's why Paul, when he's arrested, he calls the high priest who's interrogating him a whitewashed wall. Why? Because he looks very pretty on the outside, but inside he's full of dead men's bones. But on the outside, he's so pristine. He looks so put together, but he's not. It's all external. It's all fake. That's one faith. Or you have Jesus' comments, Luke 7, 47. After he tells this parable, he says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. If, you've been forgive, if you really know what it means for Jesus to forgive you for your sins, you'll love him. You'll love him. The more you understand how much he's forgiven you, the more you'll love him. Maybe you're like me and you don't show much emotion, so you're not going to cry all the time and show your love that way, but you love him. I, told, I think I've told you before, I used to have a pastor who would cry during every sermon. It was like a game. I would wait and guess when will he cry during this sermon, right? I'm not that guy. Uh, so I don't show emotion by crying. I'm not talking about the, the outward show, but the inward feeling. The more you understand how much God has forgiven you, the more you'll love him. And that love produces action, produces change in your life. This Pharisee, his view of God is all about rules. That's why he's not a loving person. But this woman, she's full of love. Because she realizes, maybe even that day she's been rescued from her sins as Jesus is preaching. She understands. And so she's responding with love in a way that was appropriate for her. If you claim to be a Christian, what do you think your relationship with God is about? Is it most about knowing the right things about God? Cold, intellectual, really cerebral? Is it most about, I must do the right things the right way? Rigid, external, no heart, all about the whitewashed wall that we put up in our lives for other people to see, regardless of what's going on behind the scenes. Or is our relationship with God most about love, gratitude, thankfulness, 
In the mid-80s, Tina Turner put out a song asking, what's love got to do with it? She said, if you're familiar with the lyrics, she said love had nothing to do with it. It's nothing but a secondhand emotion. Tina Turner was wrong, I want you to know. Your relationship with God has everything to do with love. Love has everything to do with it. The more you realize that God has forgiven the debt you could not pay, just like the debtor in the parable, the more you'll love him in return, and that's what love has to do with it. Should be the foundation of your relationship with God. Something that Pharisee didn't understand here, hopefully he did understand it. And hopefully we can understand it as we think about our life, who Jesus is, and our relationship with him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son. I pray that we would base our relationship with you on love and not first and foremost on externalism and not first and foremost on all the things we might know about you. Help us to love you and let those other good things flow from the love that we have for you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.